0: I do need to start with an apology uh, to Carson. You do not have the right scripture passage, and I apologize for that. My bad. I owe you one. Um, This morning we're uh, not going to be in Genesis for very long. We're actually going to be in Micah, which is a book most of us probably are not super familiar with. It is one of the prophets, um, called one of the minor prophets, not for importance, but for length. It's shorter. It's a part of the 12 minor prophets get it 12 tribes of Israel, 12 is important, 12 minor prophets. 12. Uh, and we're looking at it in Micah. So if you have a Bible app with you or a paper Bible, if you are old school like me, um, I would invite you to turn to Micah chapter 6. I'll give you a moment to do so. Again Carson, mubby. And as you are willing and able, I would invite you to stand with me as we hear from the prophet Micah, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord is saying. Arise, lay out the lawsuit before the mountains, let the hills hear your voice. Hear mountains, the lawsuit of the Lord. Here, eternal foundations of the earth. The Lord has a lawsuit against his people. With Israel, he will argue. Saying, my people, what did I ever do to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam before you. My people, remember what Moab's king Balak had planned and how Balaam, Baor's son, answered him? Remember everything from Shittim to Gigal, that you might learn to recognize the righteous acts of the Lord. With what should I approach the Lord and bow down before God on high? Should I come before him with entirely burned offerings, with year-old calves? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with many torrents of oil? Should I give my oldest child for my crime, the fruit of my body for the sin of my spirit? He has told you, human one, what is good and what the Lord requires from you. This is what the Lord requires from you, to do justice, embrace faithful love, and to walk humbly With your God. This is the word of the Lord this morning. You may be seated. There were once two young fish swimming together, and suddenly an older fish swims by and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the older fish swims away. Then suddenly one of the younger fish turns to the other and says, What the cuss is water? We live in a strange time, my friends. You might have heard the phrase, What a time to be alive! It's said in uh, jest About Humorous Things, uh, a new iPhone update comes out. What a time to be alive. Or not an iPhone, Tom. A new Batman movie comes out. What a time to be alive! Oreo comes out with the 37th flavor that they don't need. What a time to be alive. They have a green tea flavor. Did you guys know this? It's matcha flavored. Why? What a time to be alive, right? I will say the apple pie one's not as bad as you think, but it's not as good as you think either. It's kind of a weird space. But we live in this weird time, right? We live in a time that the authors, uh, the human authors of scripture, could never have fathomed. We carry a device in our pocket, pocket capable of accessing just about any piece of information in human history, and I use it to prove my dad wrong about movies and to send my family pictures of my dog and to receive funny Snapchats from Mark Sumler. Can you imagine explaining that to somebody in the ancient world? We live in a time when the very books of the Bible are considered ancient texts. And we have scholars who have to try to piece together what words mean when we have no idea what they mean. We have such a great distance between ourselves and the authors of scripture from the prophet Micah, that we don't just need to translate the language of Hebrew or Aramaic at places in the Old Testament or Greek in the New Testament. But we have to actually translate an entire culture. We have to translate entire people groups. We have to translate characters that we look at and go, that's not a good person. And scripture kind of goes, yeah, I know, but like it's different. Let me try to piece this together for you. For example... And this is not an attempt to make light of Scripture or make it easier or to water it down or anything like that. This is just real. In Scripture, we have a rule. How many of us are wearing denim today? Y'all are sinning. Did you know? In Leviticus, it says that is an abomination, that a mixed weave of fabric is not allowed in the people of God. So you guys have to go sit in the foyer and wait for us to be done. But, but why? Like, why is the mixed weave important? Did God really, like, look down on humanity and go, hold on, I can see that centuries from this people, there's going to be guys out in California who are mining for gold, and they need clothes that they can wear on, for months on end that don't smell and don't rip. But I just don't like it. So no mixed weaves, no denim, none of that. Is that, is that really what we think God thought of? Or maybe that rule isn't really about clothes. Maybe it's not about the mixed weaving. Maybe it's about what it says it's about, which is don't be like the people around you. And so when God says don't wear a mixed weave, maybe what God is saying is wear this physical embodiment that every time you look at your clothes and look at your neighbors, you remember, I don't wear that. Because I'm supposed to remember that the rules that God has for my life and the commandments that God has for my life and the intention that God has for my life is different. And Lord, I hope that this person understands that. So that when they say, why don't you wear denim? It's the best thing that ever happened to humanity. And you go, I know, but I'm just supposed to remember that God has called me to a different way of being. I'm supposed to be different than the Canaanites and the Philistines and the Moabites that we don't even know what None of us in this room probably know what a Philistine lived like. They had fish gods. Um, but this passage is, the passage's context in Leviticus seems to point to our responsibility among the people of Israel to not conform to the ways of the people around them, which should remind us of a passage in the New Testament from Romans. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. Do not fall so prey to the water that you just take it in without considering what it's doing to you. Be aware that you are in water, right? Like the fish. It's just the world they live in. We live in water. And as we read scripture, the question for us becomes again and again what sorts of behaviors and assumptions do we live with? that are in our very midst at this moment that we do not immediately notice, that we don't recognize maybe, that we just live out of them as a reaction. What is so normal in this time to be alive that actually makes God's very insights twist? What is our water? See, in Micah chapter 6, Micah's confronting the water that the people of Israel swim in, right? See, again, in Leviticus, we have these kind of funny laws about, like, if two men are fighting, and I can tell you about that one at another point, or don't wear mixed weaves and all these different things. But there's also a lot of really specific rules about how you do sacrifice, right? And that was just normal. Everybody sacrificed. In fact... A lot of people, like the Canaanites and the Moabites and the Philistines, sacrificed their children. And so you hear Micah push back against that and say, no, 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 no. I know that's normal where you guys live, but that's not normal. That's not okay. has to completely flip the script on them. Sacrifice was normal. I want us to consider today what is normal to us that maybe shouldn't be. once when I was in college, I took a class called Compassionate Ministries, which is about what it sounds like. Uh, As a part of that class, we went on a a short-term mission trip to San Francisco, California. And that trip was really incredibly meaningful for me and transformational in the way that I experience God and the way that I understand God. So I'm going to tell you just a, a brief story from that. And it was so meaningful, in fact, that I took my youth group when I was a pastor in Boise, I took them to San Francisco and Oakland um, because I think some of the disparities that we have normalized become so stark there that they kind of shake you a little bit. So if you don't know a whole lot about San Francisco, I'll need to give you some context. Has anybody been there? I'm assuming you went to the Golden Gate Bridge, right? You probably went to the pier. Uh, I went to the same coffee shop five times while I was there because it's really good. It's called Phil's. Um, Did any of you happen to go on a tourist venture to the Tenderloin District? No? Oh, let me tell you a little bit about the Tenderloin District. San Francisco is one of the most expensive cities in in the Western Hemisphere to live in. A single occupancy room, and I say room, not an apartment. You don't get a kitchen, you don't get a bathroom. If you're lucky, it's shared on the floor and not for the entire building that's 10 stories high. A single occupancy room is upwards of $1,000 a month in rent. And that's in the cheapest, poorest, dirtiest, most crime riddled neighborhoods, $1,000 a month. Entire families will live in these single occupancy rooms that were built in the 40s following the war for soldiers coming back. They were built to be temporary structures for at most two years. Those buildings are still standing and still have the same wiring. They still have the same plumbing. Some of them don't have air conditioning, $1,000 a month. In Boise, Idaho, I rented a house for $1,100 a month with three bedrooms, two bathrooms, a garage, a carport, a backyard that was fenced in and a front yard, two living rooms, fully furnished, $1,100 a month. But San Francisco, because of the city's draw for being in California, And because of its fairly temperate weather during the summer, you'll be lucky if you get in the 80s for a couple months. It has many other issues. And one of them is the city has a horrendous homeless problem. There's homeless people everywhere in this city. In fact, the Tenderloin District butts up against the U.N. plaza. And so police will literally kick homeless people out of the U.N. plaza. I saw a man sleeping in a sleeping bag beneath a monument dedicated to world peace, and the police came and made him move. Do you know the two fastest growing people groups that are homeless in our country? Vietnam veterans and LGBTQ teenagers. And they go to California because that's where you go when you're homeless. You go to the West Coast, right? We've got lots of songs about that. And our mission trip while I was in college was focused on spending time with and serving these homeless populations in any kind of capacity that we could during a short time. We served at different types of shelters and resource centers. If you've seen the movie, The Pursuit of Happiness, we served in that homeless shelter. It looks very different than it does in the movie, but we went and served there. Um, It's called Glide United Methodist. But one of the shelters we served at is run by a Catholic church, that's found in the very heart of the Tenderloin District. And it's so called the Tenderloin District because the police used to have to be paid so much to work in that district that they could afford tenderloins. And it's kind of ironically and unexpectedly actually shaped like a tenderloin, so it's kind of just happenstance there. Because this this area is so crime riddled and overpopulated and full of drug use and alcohol abuse and has no grocery stores, but it has like 50 uh, liquor stores. And so we spent most of our trip in the Tenderloin District. And this charity that we went to serves lunch seven days a week. Their philosophy is if we can serve a meal, we wanna serve it well, and so we can only serve one meal a day, but we will serve it well every single day. To anybody, working poor, wealthy, homeless, But you have to stand in line for a very long time to receive a ticket to then go in and eat. It's kind of a way that they can kind of keep it um, the right numbers in the room and not overcrowd the lunch area. Our job was twofold. One, we're going to go in and we're going to serve meals. We're going to dish up food. We're going to pass out drinks. We're going to clear tables. We're going to wipe them down. We're going to ask if people want seconds and get them for them. But the second one was the more important aspect of that we were told to go sit and meet people we didn't know, just to spend time with them. And see, there's a funny thing about spending time with people that are different from you, is that you realize they're really not that different from you. They might look different than you, they might smell differently from you, might talk differently than you, but you have a lot more in common than you think. I met a man whose family had been placed in a Japanese internment camp during World War II, one that was found in my state. I met a man who had lost everything in Katrina and then boarded a bus to travel to meet up with his brother in San Francisco so they could share an apartment, only to discover when he arrived in San Francisco that the hurricane that had destroyed his house had also taken his brother's life. But the most powerful memory I have from that trip was on the way in the building. See, since we were volunteers, we bypassed the ticket line and just went in through the volunteer entrance. And there's a lot of people standing outside. It was like the Royals parade, but everybody hadn't showered. And they're all standing in line to get a meal. And I started to get separated from my group just because we're passing through a giant crowd. And so that's making me kind of nervous. I'd not really spend a whole lot of time in big cities by myself. And then all of a sudden there was a break in the crowd, and I stepped through it to follow after my group. And everybody in this break was staring at this woman leaning up against a, the building. She was wearing a pink sweatshirt, and she had dirty, greasy, blonde hair. She was bent over in pain, and her eyes were wide, and she was afraid. And her face was bleeding. It looked like she'd literally just been beaten up, standing in line to get a meal. And everybody in the circle standing there going, We need to help her. What are we going to do? Somebody get something. Everybody's just standing there talking to each other. Did anybody see what happened? And everybody standing in the circle are people waiting in line to get a meal. And my group's already up ahead, and I'm passing through, and I have the privilege here, right? I've got a cell phone. I've got a group of 30 volunteers from Northwest Nazarene University who are all here to help people. I have connections. I'm about to go in and be a volunteer with a name badge. And I had a voice that I could get her help. But my friends were already halfway down the block. My professor was already halfway down the block, and they're getting farther and farther away, and I don't know where I am. And in this moment, I know for a fact that in that moment, God was breaking into the world and said, do something. And instead, I turned and ran away and followed after my group because I didn't know what to do. I followed my friends. I was crying the whole time, and I catch up with my group, and they're like, why are you crying? I'm like, I don't know. It's fine. I turned, and I walked away. Because that's the water I swam in. Because the water of my culture told me, you don't know that person, you don't do anything. You keep going. You don't get lost in a city, what are you going to do? And in that moment, I chose the water that I swam in instead of the gospel. And I chose comfort and I chose familiarity instead of choosing righteousness and justice. I chose to run away and close my eyes instead of doing as the prophet Micah calls us to do, instead of doing justice, embracing faithful love, and walking humbly with God. I hid. And brothers and sisters, I hope that you hear this today and hear the words I have to say and know that I sit among you. I am a pastor that loves you very dearly, and I am a person Who has turned away from someone in that pink sweatshirt and I hid instead? Because that's what sin causes us to do, right? We know in Genesis chapter 3 that when Adam and Eve sin, they hide when God breaks into their world. God calls out to them, where are you? This God who had just created this big, beautiful world for them to live in and take care of and tend to like a garden to love, and to care for, they instead choose distrust and grasp at that which was never intended from them, and they hide. And when they hide, God seeks them out. Genesis 3 says, in the cool of the day, when God would walk with them, and they knew, and so they hid. And they filled a pool with water that was more comfortable and more appealing so that they could swim. Brothers and sisters, we have a water that we swim in too. We are all guilty of having blinders and bias. I am. But the gospel... But Scripture breaks into our swimming pools. It breaks into the fishbowls that we create for for ourselves. And it says, how is the water today? The power of Scripture is that it awakens us to see the water for what it is. It invites us to hear the cries of the oppressed. And my friends, it commands us very clearly, over and over and over to care for the widow and the orphan because it says, if you do not, who will? God's commandments have always called God's people to care for the poor and the oppressed. In Leviticus, another weird law says, leave the edges of your crops untouched so that the poor who do not have fields can eat. Leviticus says to leave your doors open to the immigrant on your feast days so they can celebrate too. It calls us to care for the elderly in a culture that tells us to put them in homes. It tells us to educate our youth in the ways of the Lord so that they might grow in wisdom and understanding. It tells us to treat women as equals, not like cattle. It tells you to honor your body as a temple because God resides in it. Not to throw it away like a shell or a husk. It tells us to pray for our enemies and those who persecute us and tells us do not retaliate. Scripture when we read it properly opens our eyes to see the pink sweatshirts and the bleeding women in our midst. She's not always dressed like that. Sometimes she looks like someone who's grieving. Sometimes she's dressed in a burqa and is being belittled by someone in line at a coffee shop. Sometimes she's a mother fleeing a civil war or criminal unrest and is crying out for asylum. Sometimes she's a criminal. A lot of times she's a criminal. Sometimes she's a beggar. But Jesus' words come to us, and we hear The goats saying, Lord, when did we see you and not give you a meal or clothes or a cup of water or a place to rest or visit you in prison? And he replied, whatever you did not do to the least of these, you did not do for me. Likewise, whatever you did do for the least of these, you have done as though to me. What a time to be alive. Our culture's water measures six. Scripture teaches us to measure faithfulness instead of success. And it says to measure. We swim in tells us that I come first and everyone else comes last. And if they don't bring me happiness, culture teaches us that I am the plumb line of my own truth. I determine my opinion. Christ calls us to die to ourselves, to carry a cross, an instrument of government torture and our own selves. And Christ declares that he is the truth and invites those who follow him to seek him out, to wrestle with him. Brothers and sisters, I'm a student of many things. Sometimes, in my free time, I'm a student of history. And someone told me recently, I don't know of a time in our country's history where we've been this politically divided. You know, except for during slavery and the Civil War and under Jim Crow and during the Civil Rights Movement and during the Vietnam Wars and the Korean Wars and the Iraq War and after 9-11, after Nixon declared that he can do whatever he wants if he's president. Our nation's history is um, among many other things about what constitutes morality and what constitutes law. That's a part of our water. That the church is not a political party, it does not have a political party. pushing against all other politics that contradict it because the gospel is participating in the world. The gospel is life. So as the church, we cannot be divided by our politics because they are always third place at best. you and I can both receive from the Lord's table and from the Lord's hand and vote for different candidates. You and I can both participate in God's calling and have differing ideas of what it looks like in the political arena. We can have completely divergent opinions about how we practice God's justice with our vote, and that's okay. But as the church... We must be united about the gospel and around the very person of Jesus Christ, around his broken body, around his shed blood, for every single human person and for the life of all of creation, whether human or otherwise. Christ said that the very rocks would cry out that he is God if we did not. There is no other Lord under heaven or earth. The ark of scripture constantly breaks in to show us a God who seeks out the least deserving, the most vile. Because sometimes that's us too, isn't it? It shows us and the upright. It shows us a God who calls and demands. in order to bring them even a glass of cool water. And so sometimes the waters are going to get a little murky. That God has been bringing about redemption and healing from the very first moment. Participate in that act as well. This redemption is more than a checked box. Christ's life for us, breaking into our death, does more than just change our objective status after death. It's not a bonus box that we carry under our arms and open when convenient to pull out a toy or throw one verse of scripture at somebody, right? This life that is given to us by God the Father, Son, and Spirit requires something different of us than what our world requires of us. And Micah reminds us that it requires our whole selves. That this God has not given us just a different quality of life, but life itself. And the only response to such a gift is to begin to gratefully live embracing faithful love by walking humbly with our God.